Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Gooder is an Atlanta company that connects folks in need with food, that would have otherwise been discarded. We'll talk to founder and CEO Jasmine Crow. She's been a guest on this program so many times to discuss what's new at Gooder and how it's been navigating through the pandemic. Plus, the old Farmer's Almanac has been publishing weather forecasts, farming tips, and moon face data for the two centuries. Well, what's in place in the digital age? We'll tell you what's in store for this year. We'll talk with editor Janice Stillman. All that's coming up. But first this, let's talk gas prices. Republican and Democratic elected officials from Georgia say they want to reduce the sticker shock of rising gas prices in the state. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp tweeted Tuesday that he is working with lawmakers to temporarily suspend the state's motor fuel tax. In a release sent out just moments ago, Kemp says he'll do so by tweaking a piece of legislation first introduced last year. He says the tax break will last through the end of May. Now, Democratic U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock has been calling for the federal government to suspend collection of its gas tax. That's a response to discontent over, over rising fuel prices caused by inflation. Gas prices are expected to keep rising, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation. Now that President Biden has announced a ban on U.S. imports of Russian oil, of course, due to the country's invasion of Ukraine. In other news, a state Senate bill criminalizing people sleeping outside is moving forward at the Capitol. Stephanie Stokes reports from a Hetic committee meeting yesterday. Several Atlanta area lawmakers first led a vote to table the bill. They said there wasn't enough input from the city with the biggest homeless population, Atlanta. Nikki Merritt represents parts of Gwinnett County. My question is, have you talked to the city of Atlanta? Have you had a meeting with them? Have you talked to advocates? The bill's sponsor, Senator Cardin Summers of Cordell in South Georgia, said no. But he said this is not an Atlanta bill. There are other cities and counties and municipalities in this state that have homeless issues. More committee members showed up, creating enough votes to pass Summer's bill. It next goes before the full state Senate. Urban camping is already illegal in the city of Atlanta. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. And now an update to a segment heard on the program just this week. Voters in coastal Georgia have rejected Camden County's plan to buy land to build a commercial spaceport. Unofficial election returns from late Tuesday showed a sizable majority of voters are against the purchase. The vote was forced by opponents concerned about environmental and safety risk. County commissioners have spent the past decade and more than $10 million pursuing Spaceport Camden as an economic engine that would attract supporting industries and tourists. Commissioners have appealed a judge's decision to allow the vote in the first place. They say Georgia's constitution doesn't allow voters to veto the project at the ballot box. And finally, the Arthur Blank Foundation is donating $250,000 to the United Nations Children's Fund, also known as UNICEF, to aid their response to the growing humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. And according to UNICEF, the Russian invasion of the country has killed and wounded children and displaced more than a million people. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Food security, we know, was a problem before the coronavirus, but the pandemic, well, made it worse. People have long struggled to have access to enough healthy food for themselves and their families. And in 2021, at least 42 million people experienced what we call food insecurity. And that's according to the nonprofit Feeding America, which operates 200 food banks throughout the U.S. That's one in eight people and one in six children. Here in Georgia, 13% of the population is considered food insecure. Well, a local Atlanta company led by Jasmine Crow has been working to end food waste. And I feel like a proud auntie because the first time I spoke with Jasmine was back in 2018 when we met inside Pond City Market. So take me to that moment when you realize, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. And then I come up with gooder. So I was already working in this space of trying to fight hunger on my own, cooking meals in my kitchen and going out and feeding people that were experiencing homelessness on the streets. And so a video of my work one day did go viral and people were saying, this is so amazing what you do, which restaurants donate the food? And the reality was no one did. I was going to all the grocery stores, I was couponing, price matching, and you know going to farmer's markets to make these meals for these vulnerable populations while at the same time, restaurants were just throwing away all the food. And that's really when I started thinking, I need to come up with something to solve this. But I will tell you, Rose, when my friend of mine that went to college with me, when I realized that she was experiencing hunger in her household, it really changed my whole perspective because here I have been feeding members of our homeless community on the streets for five years, faithfully. And then never thinking that someone that was college educated, married, had to fight all the odds would be experiencing hunger. It changed my life. We often hear that the face of poverty, the face of hunger has changed. It's not what people typically think. So when you realize that with your friend and you said it really changed something inside of you, what was the next process then? The next process then was if it was affecting her, I realized how many people it was affecting that I I didn't know. So at that time I started to really research hunger and food waste at higher levels and my eyes were really open, but you're absolutely right. The face of hunger is changing. It is no longer the person that is standing outside with the sign that says we'll work for food. And the thing that hurts me the most is that these are working people. These are not people that are expecting handouts. They're going to work every single day and they just cannot make means meet. Food is the first thing to go. So if you are living paycheck to paycheck and you have to make a critical decision every month and you have to choose between, am I going to pay for my rent or my lights or am I going to pay for food? And so most of the time you're going to keep that roof over your head. You're going to try and keep those lights on for you and your family. And it is like, okay, we can go to bed hungry tonight and no one should have to do that. Mm, a A lot has happened since then. Gooder's founder and CEO Jasmine Crow is back and she joins me now to talk more about our company's new initiatives and how it's been navigating through the pandemic. Jasmine, good to see you again through the virtual world. Welcome back. Rose, it's been so long. I just, I mean, thinking back, that was four years ago. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you for talking to me then and talking to me now. Let's start here because I, I know like so many, all of us, the last two years, we all had to change our daily routines, our operations, businesses had to change. Um, What's been, how has Gooder been holding up through the pandemic? And now it seems that we're on the other side of it, so to speak, but how the last two years? We're getting there, right? We're we're getting to the other side of it for certain. You know, Rose, you got to think when we first started the pandemic, we were a business that was really focused on getting edible food from businesses like Pont City Market to nonprofit organizations and people that were food insecure and largely large venues. So as you can imagine, when the pandemic first started, all those businesses closed, everyone was quarantined. And I was thinking to myself, how, how is my business even gonna stay in place? Like, how are we gonna last? And I went back to what you just played, you know, those days when I was feeding people on the streets. And I knew that during this time of the pandemic, 
more people were going to be in need than ever before. And it made me think, how can we support that? And so we started creating pop-up grocery stores, going right into the communities and food deserts and allowing families to come and shop for free. We did partnerships with everybody from the Atlanta Hawks to Spanx to Quality Control Music to MailChimp. And we began delivering free food boxes, gooder boxes, uh, filled with about 40 to 50 meals in each box. Mm. And we would deliver those to the doors of people throughout Metro Atlanta. And we started opening grocery stores and delivering food to seniors. So we really focused on hunger. We, we began to focus less on food waste during the pandemic and more on getting food to people. You know, when we first met and you talked about the idea for the app, and I remember you telling me, I'm not a tech person. I just took out a piece of paper and a pen and I drew, this is what the app will look like and the buttons will go here. <laughs> and it's going to do this. I was very, I, I had a lot of belief in myself at that time that that it would happen and it, and it did. You know, I finally got that app to market in 2018, but you're right. I wasn't a tech person. I just was trying to speed people. And from it, I built a whole technology company that really helps power what it is that we do. You know, when we talk about what you all have been able to do, and you also mentioned that in the clip, the biggest misconceptions people have about who is experiencing food insecurity. And during this pandemic, I imagine you all saw that firsthand. It wasn't just who people might have thought, okay, we know that certain populations, the pandemic, you know, the things they're going through is going to be amplified. But for folks that didn't, that didn't have a job or they lost their jobs. I know because we covered this. You had a lot of households who were in need and food was the number one thing they needed. You know, and you're right about that, Rose. Beyond that, there were a lot of people that experienced hunger for the first time. And that was that was something that I don't think we talked about enough, right? We knew that millions of people were experiencing hunger, but it's different when you experience it for the first time. I can't, you know, I think it's, it's just, you know, my, I have a, a daughter, I had a whole kid during the pandemic. So that's yeah. something that happened, <laughs> but you know, it's like walking for the first, like you're experiencing something that you've never experienced before. And when I tell you that experience hit nurses, uh, you think nurses, like you're always going to have a job. What about if you were a nurse that worked in plastic surgery and elective surgery that during the plight of the pandemic, all those were canceled mm -hmm. or flight attendants. Um, I, you know, we had a, a grand opening of our office a few weeks ago and a lady came up to me and she said, I was furloughed from American airlines at the start of the pandemic. And I used to come to your pop-up grocery stores and that's how I used to eat. And she was saying, you know, I never had food better than that. We didn't think about what that was going to mean. And that's that's what we saw. And that was life changing for me. When you mentioned you all had to shift as well, but with restaurants and eateries closing, where did the food come from? Did they still have a surplus for you? So they said, look, you know, since we're not cooking anything right now or, or what, what was that? Did you have to find other ways to fill in the gap? Absolutely. I mean, at the very start of the pandemic, I would have a team of about 30 people shopping in grocery stores. Well, that's how we had to do it. We had to because we had to move so fast, Rose. I think, you know, just thinking back to it. And you know what's so crazy? This is yesterday marked two years to the date that Governor Kemp announced that Georgia was going to quarantine. I'll never forget. It was Friday. I think it was Thursday, March is when this all happened. And I remember thinking like, oh God, everything's gonna change. But we, we started getting calls immediately from Atlanta Public School District, from seniors. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many calls we started getting. And the first call we got was from APS. And it was, they have all these students that get free breakfast and lunch at school mm -hmm. and ride the bus every day. How are these kids gonna get meals? And so Gooder started delivering those meals from that they said, we have, the kids are getting food, but the parents are in the household. They're not working. They need food. Is there a way you can help? And so my team would be going out to the grocery stores and we'd have to go to thousands of, I mean, hundreds of grocery stores, right? Because every grocery store was limiting what you can get. Here we are trying to feed 800 households a week. And they were telling us we could get two things of milk and two things of, uh, two canned goods. It was that level of everything being off the shelves. 
And eventually we were able to start working with the brands and begin recovering surplus from them. And it got a little easier maybe around the summer, Mm -hmm. Uh, but early, you know, March, April, May, it was very much hands on the ground. We're going into grocery stores and getting food to people with donations. The voice you hear is Jasmine Crow, the founder and CEO of Gooder. And we're talking about the sustainable waste management companies. That's that's what you are like, the sustainable waste management companies, new initiative. We're going to talk about it in a moment, but I want to go back because Jasmine, in 2018, you didn't have a fleet of Gooder trucks, right? Yeah, I saw a good yeah, truck. Very little. <laughs> I saw a gooder truck in my complex. I think I took a picture of it. And I sent it to you. I you like, sent that to me. I said, "This is great. You're this has grown, and you've become sort of an international food justice rock star." I'm not trying to hype your head up. I saw oh, you. Wow. You were speaking somewhere. Was it Dubai? Somewhere you were speaking, and I said, "Yeah, I've spoken in Dubai and Egypt, and I mean." I think the reason why, Rose, is I'm thinking about solving hunger and food waste just differently than we've thought about it in the past. And with that, there there's always objections. You know, there's always people that are like, she's she's going against the old guard. She's trying to change how things have always been done. But my my argument to that is, why not? Like, what do we have to lose? I'm trying to change people being dependent on food banks to giving people a guaranteed amount of food to help them really get out of poverty. Well, let's take that and further. It, it, wait, wait, hold up. Back up. When you say yeah. folks say she's going against the green, what was the criticism there? You know, I think people will say I, I criticize food banks or food pantries. And, you know, I'm criticizing how hunger has been solved before. I mean, this happened a lot after my TED talk in 2019, when my, in the title of the TED talk, which a funny story rose, we don't make our titles to the TED talks. TED does that. So TED titles, my TED talk, what we're getting wrong in the, in the fight against hunger. And one of the things that I said, and, and I saw this play out is, when I volunteered at food banks, we are basically getting donated food and giving that food to people. But a lot of times that food doesn't go together. And I I laid out very specifically volunteering at a food bank here in Atlanta, where we were putting boxes together. There are about 50 families outside. When I got there to volunteer, they were already waiting. Mm -hmm. And we were giving them there was a gallon of barbecue sauce. And I remember it's ingrained in my mind. It was a gallon of barbecue sauce, some kettle potato chips, a miniature can of corn, a can of refried beans, a can of peas, uh, the French fried green onions that mm-hmm. go on top of green bean casserole, um, a Belvita breakfast biscuit box, and then low fat Weight Watchers ding dongs. Mm-hmm. And that's what these families are waiting. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no meal here. And what that does is now those 50 people that were waiting in line for that food, they get home and they're like, okay, now I need to get, you know, some meat for the Mm -hmm. barbecue sauce. I need to have something to go with the refried beans or I need green beans for the French fried green onions. We are not giving people food that can make meals. We're giving people food and saying, we're helping to solve hunger and we're measuring a lot of, you know, food banks and pantries and, and food hunger relief services measure meals based off of pounds. And I don't mm-hmm. think you should do that because if you give someone 10 pounds of onions, you can't say you gave that family 10 meals because unless they're eating onions for breakfast, lunch and dinner, that's not a meal. And so what we've done with Gooder is we're very intentional and we're going to get the family. If it's spaghetti, we're giving them garlic bread vegetables mm-hmm. we're going to give them meat we're going to give them spaghetti You're giving sauce. meals we're going to give them noodles we're going to give them meals and so i get a lot of criticism about that but it's fine because that is that's my true experience that i've i've seen and it's not right let me let's let's then talk about then how the system your system has changed because i correct me if i'm wrong in the first initial phase of that it was the restaurant and eateries that would sign up right now mm-hmm. families households can place orders through the app they can't place orders but we work largely with cities and counties mm-hmm. and they give us names of families um, whether it's families or senior citizens that are in need of food and we deliver food directly to those families 
So it's, we haven't opened it up to where they can place orders, but we do open it up to where families can register for our pop-up grocery stores. They can come out and get food when we're doing those initiatives. We've also opened two brick and mortar grocery stores, one in a school, one in a senior home. So we are touching a lot more families along with the businesses. Um, but during the pandemic is when we really were heavy focused on families. And you you partnered with, with, with our Atlanta-based rapper Gunna to open a free grocery yes. store at Ronald E. McNair Middle School. Because he, he went there, right? He went to that middle school? He went he went there and his mom was a cafeteria worker at the middle school. How She worked in the cafeteria. How many partnerships can you even begin to count from 2018 to now that your organization has been able to align itself with? You've been doing a lot in the community with a lot of different partners. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot, everybody from, you know, Gunna to the Atlanta Hawks to the NBA to, you know, partners like IHG, Sodexo Magic, which is Magic Johnson's joint venture with Sodexo. So we have been doing a lot of partnerships. And I think just the time was right for this. It's constructive disruption is what I like to call it. We are disrupting the waste industry and the hunger industry in a positive way. We're trying to keep food out of landfills, get edible food to people in need and get people meals instead of just giving them boxes of food and saying, here, you're hungry, take this and, and go on. We really want people to be treated with more dignity. And consider this. In the U.S., which I believe is the nation that discards the highest amount of food on the planet, we're looking at 40 to 50 million tons of food that is wasted, that's discarded every year. That's the stat I read. Every year. Every year. And, and let me tell you, I read a stat recently, and Rose, I'll, I'll send this to you on Twitter because I know you were, were Twitter friends. And it had said something to the effect that the country of America wastes more than the continent of Africa. And I, that was startling to me to think that in this country, we're wasting more food than an entire continent. Hmm. Yeah, something to to think about. Now, other than this, and congratulations on your little one. And Jasmine, you wrote a book, you wrote a children's book. I did. I wrote a children's Hey, listen, I've been busy since 2018, Rose. We've got to talk more often. What was the inspiration behind? I think I know the answer to this. It's called Everybody Eats. Yeah, you know, I think I get asked the question a lot. Will you solve hunger in your lifetime? Do you think that's going to be, you know, your, your, it's my life goal no matter what. But you look at the stat that you just said when we were starting 40 million people, and that's just in the United States. We're talking one in eight people on the planet that are going hungry. So I don't think I'll do it in my lifetime unless I just, you know, get a lot of support. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to encourage the next generation to join me in the fight. And obviously having a kid uh, was a big piece of it as well, like of me finally pushing it out there. But I had wrote the book before I ever was pregnant, before I ever even had a child. I just hadn't put it out there yet. And it was really just designed to, one, inspire kids to, you know, join me in the fight. But two, if we're living in a country that says one in six kids are hungry, chances are there are kids in school. Your kid could be in school with another child that's hungry. And I wanted to teach mm -hmm. empathy and caring and let people know ways that they could be helpful. And so I think that's really the the big goal of the book. And it's, it's doing so well. I mean, a lot of uh, the entire county, uh, Shelby County school system in Memphis, Tennessee, was the first county to purchase the book. And they purchased the book because they said one in three of their kids in their school system were going hungry and they just felt like they had to talk about this hmm. so that they purchased it so that those kids knew that they weren't the only kids that were going hungry. And from that, the and that was, it was a lot. Wow. And from the little kids to the big kids, you have internships available for HBCU students. Yes, we have two internships, $10,000. It's a stipend, but they get paid every two weeks. So it's not like they have to work the whole summer and then get the stipend. Mm -hmm. They're actually going to get paid, you know, every two weeks. It starts June, um, I want to say June 17th, that whatever that 
second or third Monday is in the month. And I'm encouraging HBCU students to apply from everywhere. Um, I don't want to just see applicants from Spelman and Morehouse. Mm-hmm. We, what about Fort Valley State? What about, you know, what about these other schools? Like if you're interested in sustainability or hunger or technology, this is a great internship for you. And I'm encouraging you to send us your resumes before March 31st. So a couple more weeks. All right. And finally, Jasmine, what's next for Gooder? Where do you hope to see this in the next five years? Rose, in the next five years, we've got to be everywhere. You know, right now we're operating in about 19 markets. Atlanta's still number one, Denver, Colorado, number two, Dallas, Texas, number three. But hunger exists everywhere. So what's next for Gooder is expansion, growth, um, hiring more people to really be able to solve this problem on a greater scale. Jasmine Crow, the founder and CEO of the sustainable waste management company Gooder. We've been talking about the company's newest initiatives and how it responded during COVID-19. Jasmine, as always, thank you for all you do and your entire team at Gooder, what you all will continue to do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. And Close Look continues from WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You know, it's a disparity that's always existed when we talk about home ownership and by race. In 2019, the U.S. home ownership rate was about 64.6%. But for black Americans, it was 42.1%. So now this year, here's what we know. The U.S. home ownership rate has increased to 65.5%. That was in 2020. And that's the highest ever. Now, the home ownership rate for Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans are 61 and 51 percent, respectively. And the rate for black Americans is only inched up to 43.4 percent. So last week, an initiative aligned with resources related to increasing home ownership opportunities for black and Latina households, not just in Atlanta, but nationwide, was announced here. And one of the nation's largest financial institutions is involved. It's J.P. Morgan Chase. And immediately following that announcement, I spoke with Jamie Dimon, CEO and president, as well as J.P. Morgan Chase, board chair. Chairman Dimon, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. You heard those home ownership disparity statistics that I mentioned coming into the segment. Reflect on what you feel, because this is not something that's new. It's been ongoing through your lens. What do you feel are the contributing factors to this gap when it comes to home ownership and particularly among races and particularly for blacks. Yeah. So, you know, look, COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd pointed out two things we already knew, which is the black community, the poor community is left behind even more when there's a recession or COVID or, uh, or obviously the inequities, uh, you know, to poor to black folks who were killed unnecessarily. So the whole thing is it's been, this has been going for 170 years since the civil war. So we need to make a more determined effort to get close to race equity quicker. And home ownership is a big part of that. So you need jobs, you need wages. But one of the big ways that people build their wealth is they buy a home. They get that mortgage. And if you don't have a credit file, it's hard to get a mortgage. If you don't get an appraisal, it's hard to get a mortgage. So we're making mortgages more available to black folks and black communities. We're putting loan officers in black communities. And we're trying to come up with new alternative methods to extend credit. For example, a lot of your listeners may not know is that if you paid rent for 20 years in a row, it will not count in your credit score. But we can count in how we look at someone's credit. So we're going to try to be seeking out new ways to do things. Uh, and the third thing is to get government policy. There's a lot of government policies that can be changed that make it easier for lower income folks to get mortgages. Let me ask you this. So based on everything that you just said, then you're saying, Chairman Diamond, that this gap it's it's beyond just access to home ownership, but rather black households being ready to even start this process of purchasing a home. You're talking about all the barriers that exist before even yeah. talking about access. That's correct. There's income levels. There's having savings. There's being there's learning about how you go about getting a home, like what a mortgage is and. Uh, uh, and then there's, you know, depending what neighborhood you're in, but they, they, banks do, don't do red line anymore, but they don't get the same access to loans. And that's a, across a whole bunch of government programs. So, yeah, there are a lot of things to fix. Uh, it is fixable, and we need to go as fast as we can. 
So, for example, J.P. Morgan is making not only mortgages more available, we're doing a, a, a far better job looking at alternative credit sources. We're doing homeowner grants, so giving folks $5,000 to make the down payment. Uh, and we're going to try to invent new mortgages. And we always go to Washington and try to get them to change some of their programs to make, it more access- make them more accessible. So you're saying through your lens that the key is more local programs and resources to complement federal programs? Yes, absolutely. And so, like with- For example, we, we announced the $8 billion program, but to execute that, we have to put more loan officers in black neighborhoods in Harlem the south side of Chicago, the fifth parish of Louisiana, parts of Atlanta. So the, to actually execute the program on the ground has got to be done at the local level. And, of course, real estate is always local in, term, to, in terms of laws and requirements and underwriting, et cetera. You say real estate is local, and, of course, we all know that. But let's just focus on Atlanta for a moment because I've been doing this for a long time, and I love to ask folks this question. You're going to be the person that gets the question. So when you talk about defining affordable housing, what does that look like for you through your lens for someone here in the Atlanta region? What should it look like? And how do you define affordable housing? How do you define it? Yeah. So I think there are several different parts. Are we talking about mortgages? Yeah. That's almost where you graduate out of affordable housing. So affordable housing, and we just met with the mayor, and he actually described it better than I've ever heard it described, is it shouldn't be permanent. It should be somewhere where you go, you need a little help, you get the education, you're there for five years. But hopefully after that, you can leave and get a mortgage, buy a house and start building your wealth that way. So, you know, obviously affordable means you have to be able to afford it. On, on why you're going to school or on your or a job that's not earning the income you need, why you're getting the skills that can earn you uh, more income. But there are some things that we all can't control, which obviously can be the market. And when you look at a region like Atlanta, the Atlanta region, there are things that we can't control. We can't control when economic development comes in and it raises the, the, right. the, the, you know, the, the, the taxes. We can't control when a neighborhood changes and four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars are coming homes are coming online. Will your program be able to address this for folks who want to stay in the neighborhood that they grew up in, that their their parents brought into, and their their grandparents? Yeah, it, that the answer is absolutely. But that has to be done in conjunction with the city. So your mayor has to set aside the land. Uh, the city's got to get the new market uh, tax credits. The builders here, but that's absolutely you want. If all it is moving people out of a town where they have jobs, et cetera, that's not really great for society. So I think you are doing that, Atlanta. I'm not an expert in all your housing sure. here, but a lot of other cities have learned the hard way that they're not they're not making it conducive to build affordable housing. They, they're putting zoning restrictions in place and limits in place and size restrictions in place. So some of the affordable housing will be single units, some will be apartments, et cetera. And a big part of this, when we talk about the solutions and everyone has said there is no one magic bullet there's no one magic solution we've heard about public and private partnerships we've heard about a holistic approach to this issue of of getting folks in homes and particularly people of color and so with this announcement that you all are making this week it's all of the above that you all are involved in yeah it's mortgages it's affordable housing it's work skills, so getting kids, basically not degrees, but certificates that get them the ability to get a job is paying forty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Uh, uh, it's financial education, so it's like just bringing people in, explaining mortgages and savings and how you go about that, and uh, and then things like what I think also counts that we have a thing called the Entrepreneur of Color Fund. We actually started in Detroit. We now partner with LISC across the nation to help businesses that need a little bit of capital and a little bit of advice to get to the next level. And so, you know, that hopefully you can build a lot of businesses. And then it's even the things like these community branches we have, they're bigger. But in that community branch, we're opening one in Atlanta soon. Uh, uh, the, art lo- the art is local. The p- people who maintain the branch are local. The cleaning is local. When we do food events is local. Then we have space for the local people so that you can have uh, businesses come in. You can do education for on savings, on mortgages, on you know, investing money. Uh, and then we have some brand new called a community manager. Mm-hmm. So not just the branch manager, but the community manager reaches out to local not-for-profits, local schools, local businesses, you know, to, to make sure we're doing the job in the community. And we hire locally. 
So that is a real community branch. So it's really building the community and not just uh, having a consumer branch. So there's a financial literacy phase to all of this. And for our listeners, because when they hear this conversation and they're thinking, oh, wow, so I'm going to go into J.P. Morgan Chase and have all these resources. Before I let you go, I want you to be able to give listeners sort of break it down how all this will work for them when you all. Because you, you're saying yeah. you all will have a branch here that will focus on all these initiatives that we just talked about, yes. correct? Absolutely. And, and online services that do it. But we want everyone to feel welcome to come in and come as you are. And we're going to have people stand in front and take questions and explain all these issues. The other thing, by the way, is a public policy matter. Schools, I literally K to 12, should teach financial education. Just so people understand the basics of savings. Uh, payday lending, checking accounts, investment accounts, so that they, it's on their mind. You know, people, once they start to save that first 10 or $20, they tend to continue to save. So just to start the thinking and the kind of the muscle memory to start people on the savings and the idea that they can own a home one day. This conversation will fit nicely into a new series that we just relaunched here called Paycheck to Paycheck, looking at how Georgians, specifically Atlantans, are making it in between payroll checks and so with this announcement, with this home ownership, making it maybe not easily, but making it access for folks, for people of color, when will all this be online? Because, as you know, when folks hear this conversation, Chairman, they want to know yeah. when and where can I access well, this? Well, we have we have uh, almost 100 branches in, in uh, today in Atlanta and the new community branch. It's going to be opened in June in Summerhill. So please come visit and we'll try to help any way you can. And finally, as we end our conversation, how important is it for a major institution, you're a major financial institution like J.P. Morgan, Chase, look, folks have been down this road before with resources that have been promised and some institutions, you know, they've merged (laughs) and with the deals of the merger, they had to scrap some programs. You all are committed to these initiatives and to these resources for people here in the Atlanta area who want to become homeowners. What do you want to tell our listeners? And we're, we're totally committed. The company's are 100% behind it. Uh, we're going to our second year. The point isn't to end it at the end of five years. The point is to take the best of it and continue it and maybe double down. And uh, so I agree with you. You know, Star Star programs don't work. Lifetime charity doesn't work. So each one of these programs, we get smarter and better and double down and get better. And it's also, we're one bank. You know, we, we would love, unlike other things, we'd love anyone to join in this. So the Entrepreneur of Color Fund, that was J.P. Morgan Chase, started that in Detroit, you know, and now we do it in 15 cities, but that we're doing with LISC. So we have lots of other banks now who said, you know what, we want to participate in that program. We don't call it the J.P. Morgan uh, Entrepreneur of Color Fund. Mm-hmm. It's called the Entrepreneur of Color Fund so that anyone can join. And then other things we've learned, you know, we now, we don't have college degree required on something like 60,000 jobs. They really weren't required. You know, skills might be required, but not college degree. And so, and we also started a program and working with the government to, you know, as a regulated bank, we weren't allowed to hire in certain jobs ex-felons. And we got them to change it. So last year we hired over 2,000 ex-felons. You know, people need a second chance in society. So there are a million things to do. We're going to do them all. We're doing them uh, diligently, thoughtfully. And I agree with you. If it's not kind of permanent, it's not going to work. And finally, Mr. Chairman, you, the metrics you all will use to assess the effectiveness of this program yeah. and did it the, do what it was supposed to do? Yeah. So we actually report that out. So we actually had the first year report. You can get it. I think it's online. You go to J.P. Morgan Chase and look under a racial equity commitment. It's how many mortgages you do, how many affordable housing units, how many businesses you help get regular bank, how many people went through education, how many open savings accounts, how many more. So literally there are real dollar metrics and unit metrics and stuff like that on everything I said. And, you know, we have thousands of people working this and they know, you know, I'm a kind of a freak when it comes to measuring yourself. And so this is being measured. And, you know, we won't be perfect. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking for home runs. I'm looking to do what we do, learn from it, and make it better. Like I mentioned that one thing about alternative credit, that could be a huge difference in, you know, making credit more available to people of color. Looking for other ways that people can, have demonstrated their credibility and their credit. And so, you know, we're, we're going to be doing a lot of things and sharing this with other banks, by the way. We're not going to keep it just to ourselves. All right. Well, we're going to have you back. When you come back to Atlanta, you'll come into the Closer Look studio and hang out with us. Great. Chairman and thank CEO you. Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Bye-bye. 
And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I'm going to give you Closer Look's first and only moon phase report. It goes like this. As the temperature begins to warm and the ground begins to thaw, earthworm casts appear, heralding the return of the robins, thus the origin of March's full moon. Name the full worm moon. That is Closer Look's first and only moon phase report, sponsored by nobody. But where did I find that information? The Farmer's Almanac. Now think about this. Where would you have gone for that information? Well, you wouldn't have been alive, but let's say 200 years ago uh, when George Washington was president. Well, you could have turned to the old Farmer's Almanac. At that point, they hadn't had the word old to their name. But it was one of many almanacs published back then, and it stood the test of time, as they say, even in a digital age. Joining me now, as she has before in the past, is Janice Stillman, one of the editors, a position she's held since the year 2000. Janice, welcome back. Rose, it's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And that was a lovely introduction. Yes. Did you like my moon phase report there? I loved it. Yes. <laughs> Moons are so important to people. I mean, they, people plant by the moon. They fish by the moon. You know, they daydream by the moon. Certainly, we've got a couple of uh, eclipses of the moon coming up. 2022 so moons are everybody the easiest thing to see in the sky and i think i told you this some years ago when we first started speaking with you all my mother would cut my hair when i don't know what the moon phase was but some moon phase she's like gonna cut your hair because then it'll grow back longer and lovelier and i was like okay mom just whatever you're gonna do and you are so right you were spot on because it's cutting hair it's quitting smoking it's weaning babies and animals it's so many things it's about two and a half dozen items we give this calendar in the book every year the things to do on the best days it's called the most propitious days most favorable days absolutely now you all are up in lewiston maine is that correct no, we're in Dublin, New Hampshire. There are okay. other farmers on the next, one in Maine and a couple others in other parts of the country. Okay, but, but you, you all are, you all are where? In Dublin, New Hampshire, okay. southwestern New Hampshire. Ah, now let me ask you this. Um, how have you all been doing in terms of day-to-day op- operations with the Farmer's Almanac? I mean, I, I know the pandemic had to, to present some, or did it present any challenges for you all? Well, you know, the Old Farmer's Almanac has been around for 230 years since 1792, which I think you mentioned when George Washington was president. We've made it through numerous wars, numerous famine, numerous other pandemics, and so we weren't going to let this one stop us. We worked from home for a few months, and then we all came back, masks and you know, distance and everything we needed to do. So now we're continue to be back up and running. We've never missed a minute, certainly never missed an issue. And with the digital version, you all, obviously, I mentioned this too, you know, I'm now having the digital version online. Have you seen subscriptions increase? Have you seen more folks turning to the digital version here? Well, you know, we print and distribute almost 3 million copies of the paperback version across the U.S. and Canada. And we've seen increasing sales now for, I would say, about 10 or 15 years of the digital edition. So each one thrives in its own environment. You know, some people like to have it on screen. And they can tap through it. And some people like to have the paper to make notes or whatever the case may be. How have you all added anything in the last, uh, let's say, since the digital age? Have you all added anything, Janice? Well, we've got hundreds of pages on the website, almanac.com. Mm-hmm. Because that works in, in tandem with the publication itself. But, you know, over the years, we've done surveys of readers and we've asked them all kinds of questions. What's their favorite section? What do they use most? What do they least like? And to a person, they all say, don't change a thing. So we include the folklore, the home remedies, the astronomy, the recipes, the history, the anniversaries, the trends, and so much. And of course, of course, the weather forecast. So we the gestation and mating tables, the best fishing days, as I mentioned a moment ago, the best days, the zodiac signs. I mean, they're the best times to hatch chickens out of eggs, you know, this kind of, so it is, a publication that was a reference book before it was a Google of its time, actually. Uh, early as yes, it was. And so people like, as I say, the print edition and the e-edition, the digital edition, so whatever suits their needs. Are you surprised at still that the, the popularity and the fact that this is a resource, I mean, this is a resource for a lot, for millions of folks in this nation? Well, I, I'll be honest with you. I am surprised and I'm delighted. I mean, we get correspondence from folks through all kinds of channels on our website, as well as, you know, love letters, so to speak, in the mail. We get phone calls on a regular basis and we respond to all of these folks. And I think what really they enjoy most is the fact that the mission 
mission of the publication, the mission of the old farmer's almanac set out by the founder back 230 years ago is to be useful with a pleasant degree of humor. So there's no bad news, there's no politics, there's no taking sides. It's all kinds of fun information that's useful, enlightening, and just really timeless in many ways, even though, you know, from year to year, your astronomy changes, your dated information changes, but the book itself is useful for generations. And we should know, you have, you all work with researchers, you work with folks, it's, it's not just you're just putting this information up, you know, just because it's something to do, you all actually have a process for this information. Oh, sure. We fact check everything. I mean, people trust us. And that's a key word to why people enjoy and appreciate the almanac. There's an astounding level of trust and we respect that. If on occasion, for example, we get a digit wrong a year for, or something in the calendar pages where you find all the trivial information, then people will bring it to our attention. Mm-hmm. And we're glad that they did, honestly. Um, but they do it gracefully and generously and kind of sort of in a did you know kind of fashion because Let's face it, there are thousands of facts in the almanac from, from year to year, and mm-hmm. certainly on our other uh, publications as well. So we might occasionally have an error. We like to say that the, uh, in, the, in the almanac, the weather forecasts are 80% accurate, and everything else in the publication is 100% accurate. Really? You, you stick by that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll stand by it. And again, <laughs> with, you know, if one little date is wrong, I'm going to say that's like 99.999% accurate date. Well, I'm looking at March 9th. March 9th, which is today, is best for to cut firewood, kill plant pests, dig holes, mow to increase growth, host a party, travel for pleasure, and write. That's for March 9th. It's best for. And that's just the beginning. There are days for, for pickling and putting food by, removing, for cleaning, painting house, for planting above ground, below ground. Uh, let's see, to, um, to, to mow, to slow grass growth, for example, mm-hmm. to ask for a loan, who knew, to buy a home. I mean, this, these, again, are propitious days. <laughs> They're the, the best days. If you can't make things happen on these days, it's okay. You still may be fine. But according to astrological beliefs, that these are the absolute best days. I mentioned, Janice, that you've been doing this. You've been one of the editors. You've been doing this for a couple of decades now. What is it that keeps you going to the passion that you have for this this publication, the Farmer's Almanac? I think I have the same curiosity that readers have to just get more information. I'm an information junkie. I'm a did-you-know junkie. So whenever I'm researching new stories, I'm digging deep in to see, one, if it fits, if it suits our readers and their interests, and also, I learned so much that, you know, every issue is fun. And going back to the whole idea of it being useful with a pleasant degree of humor, if we have fun here, and we do laugh a lot, I have never laughed so much in any other job. But it, we do have a great time. And that, I think, the readers, for the most part, of anything that we put out have a good time with it as well. And they find it useful, satisfyingly useful. Is there an activity? Is there a category, a topic that you all get requests for that you're you're like, you know, we can't quite find information on that or honestly, that's just not in our wheelhouse. Well, of course, gardening is huge. So people come to us with all kinds of questions about gardening. And of course, these days and for a couple of decades now on the website. So for example, we've got all the vegetables, dozens of flowers, most of the herbs and all kinds of other things, as well as other categories of content on the website. But certainly this time of year when people are planting and getting their garden going, they have questions. Um, I just had one this morning, a woman said that her tulip foliage had been eaten down by either a deer or a bunny. And she asked, will the bulbs actually bloom? Mm-hmm. I can't be sure, but you know, I've seen that happen to my tulips as well. And it's a problem, but that's the kind of question you get year round. You know, again, it's, vegetables, edibles, all kinds of questions that we do respond to them. So those that's a huge content area for sure. us. But folklore, weather, recipes, people ask, you know, how do I double it? What happens if I do put in a different amount of something else? Whatever. I don't really deal with the cooking <laughs> question. Just well. But, uh, Anything new in store for 2022 with this Farmer's Almanac? Anything you want to highlight for folks? Well, I'd like to bring your listeners to the, the uh, news that we have one of your local gardeners in the book. We do profiles of six to eight uh, gardener, farmers around the country, small farmers typically, you know, ranchers, a mm-hmm. flower grower, 
specific names, but we've got a woman, her name is Haley Green, the Gardening Queen. And she, some of you, Haleen, excuse me, Haley Green, the Garden Queen. She has a community business garden over in the West End, and uh, she's featured among our farmers. And uh, she just has a delightful program where she grows and sells vegetables and also does educational programs and also brings people on to work on a seasonal basis. So she's profiled in the issue. I and am I think- famil- familiar with her, and we want to also just echo that. Yes, Haleen is, and, and we've been trying to actually do something on, on her. Haleen Green, you're right. The Garden Queen. It's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for, for profiling and highlighting Haleen. We were thrilled to do it. We we do we get people's names and from all over the country. I have a woman who's been doing this for me for several years and we review the candidates and then she goes after them and they're, they're just great stories. In fact, here's kind of a funny thing. We have to limit the stories of the farmers to one page, one page with a photo. Mm-hmm. And and because there's six or eight, like I so we'd say in the series, in every issue, we put a continued note at the bottom of the page at the end of the story. And we've had several people write a call to say, the story about the farmer continues, but when I turn the page, it's an entirely different farmer. What happened? What we really mean is the section continues, but the story of the individual was limited to one page length. So just be alert to that. And we definitely appreciate that. And finally, uh, as we wrap up, Janice, uh, if you... If folks are saying, you know, I never thought the Farmer's Almanac could be useful for me, what do you want them to know? Well, we've done the best days. Everybody's got best and worst days, so go look for some of those. We've got weather forecasts. <laughs> I can tell you briefly that, for example, in the spring, we're looking for warm and wet conditions, perfect for starting a garden. In the summer, we're looking for hotter and drier conditions, but also we're warning of a tropical storm in mid to late August. Fall and autumn will be slightly cooler and drier than normal, but also watch for a hurricane threat in mid-September. You also get some folklore about teeth, baby teeth, adult teeth, wisdom teeth, wow. all kinds of things. It meant over decades and centuries, you know, to different cultures. Wow. Um, just recipes, some baby back rib recipes with an apricot sriracha sauce that was the number one prize winner. We've actually got a contest for banana. Uh, the ingredients is bananas, so recipes made with bananas. Wow. It's a little too late to submit, but keep an eye out for the next contest. I don't know what the topic will be. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I I know you could, (laughs) and time won't let us. Janice Stillman, one of the editors of the Farmer's Almanac, a position she's held since the year 2000. Great conversation. Great to have you back. I really appreciate it, Janice. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. Wonderful day. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers, Janine Etter, Sean Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Kevin Rinker is our engineer. Make sure you stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 